great joy, joy to the world, all of the things that are to this world. And we want to start with a definition of the gospel, because Paul says this is the gospel of God. Okay, so we start there and we think, well, wait a minute, then what is the gospel? I mean, we're celebrating it. We're celebrating it now in this, this time of year. What is the gospel? Well, the actual definition, this is what we want to concentrate on this morning, and then the ramifications of it. The gospel is the good news. That's all it is. The good news. As a matter of fact, the Greek word is ewangelion. Uh, if you break that word down, remember I always will tell you only the Greek words that you know. See, now we're Spanish, Russian, now we're into Greek too. <clears throat> Euangelion, the E-U at the beginning is U, that means good in Greek, good. We have uh, another English word, a eulogy, right? At a funeral service, someone gives a eulogy, logia, it literally is a good word. So somebody stands up, gives a eulogy for the dead person, nobody believes any of it, but we sit and listen to it. (laughs) They say a bunch of good things, right? So that's a eulogy, so it means good, and angelion literally means angels. That's really what the word means, angels. So it is simply the good word of the angels, the good news that was sent to us, the good news that was given to us. That's the definition of the gospel. It's the good word delivered to humanity. So the gospel is not a personal testimony of salvation, The gospel is not that God has a plan for your life. The gospel is not that God loves you. That's all true. That is definitely true. But it is the gospel of God. Paul uses it four times. Peter uses it once in 1 Peter 4. It's the gospel of God. So whatever this is, whatever the angels announced or pronounced, it is first from God and about God. It's all about God, not about us. I know. That's so nasty to say to you on such a nice Sunday, huh? It's about God. You say, well, how how can we wrap our minds around this? Well, I'm going to use an example. Aristotle and his statue. And everybody's going to say, oh my Lord, he's going into philosophy on Sunday morning? And so near Christmas? There's a reason for saying this. Aristotle was trying to figure out the cause of the universe, Right? We shared this a long time ago. He, he reduced, since he was an atheist, he reduced it to one very simple thing, that the cause of the universe was the unmoved mover. He couldn't say God, so he said he's the unmoved mover. So, uh, it, but the, the way that he got to this was, he was sitting and he was looking at a statue one day, and he thought to himself, and he listed, I think there were like five or six points to this, but I'll just give you the three main points. Uh, he started off and he thought, he asked the first question, what is the efficient cause of the statue how did it get here how did that statue get here king david from michelangelo how did that statue get here well the efficient cause is the sculptor the sculptor the sculptor is the planner right he's the formulator he's the creator of that thing he saw that block of stone he saw that block of wood he saw that lump of clay and he said i'm going to make something out of that so he is the efficient cause The second question that Aristotle asked is, what is the instrumental cause? In other words, how did he do it? Well, for the sculptor, he used chisels and tools and hammers and all sorts of things like that, and rasps and everything, and he sculpted it down to what he wanted it to look like. So that's the instrumental cause, and that's a very important point. 
And then he said, his last one was, well, what's the final cause? Then what's the purpose of this statue? Why did the sculptor do this? Well, the sculptor could have done it because he was commissioned to put something in the center of town, or maybe he put it in his own living room, or maybe he put it in a rich person's garden, but he was commissioned by, the, by someone to make this thing. Now, if you look at the cause of the statue, the instrumental cause, the final cause, and all those things, did the statue have anything to do with any of this? No. The statue was embedded in stone. It didn't know what it was. Until the sculptor, oh boy, I think some of you might be getting it already. The sculptor began to sculpt the statue, and suddenly the statue was born in all of its glory. This has nothing to do with my message, so I'll step over here. We were encased in sin, were we not? Blind, dead, dumb, in sin. Until the sculptor, ooh. <laughs> All right, until the sculptor started his work. So here's, here's where the, why this is relevant. The reformers, Calvin, Wesley, Luther, the reformers used one question in their debates with the Catholic Church. They used one question said, what is the instrumental cause of our justification? That was their big question. What was the instrumental cause? How did this all happen? How are we saved? Why are we saved? Etc. They used Aristotle's question. Well, the Catholic Church in that day said that uh, it was the sacraments. They were the instrumental cause. The, the way that salvation occurred is through baptism, catechism, confession, communion, etc., etc., etc. So that was the instrumental cause. The Reformers said, no, no, the instrumental cause of our salvation is Jesus and Jesus alone. In essence, God looked at the world and said, I, the master sculptor, will create myself in the flesh. I, by my own right hand, will gain salvation for my creation, and I alone will do this for my own glory. Paul tells us explicitly what the gospel is. In Romans 1, he says, it's the gospel from God about Jesus, who was born of the seed of David, who was declared the son of God, and who was resurrected from the dead. The gospel is not a list of rules and regulations. It's not a standard of living. It's not a compendium of statutes. It's not church doctrine. It's not even a structure of right or wrong things to do. It's not a message, per se, about salvation. The gospel is not the four spiritual laws. The gospel is not how to get saved. The gospel is not accepting Christ as your savior. It's not how much you read the Bible. It's not how much you pray or go to church or how much you tithe. I hope you do all those things. I hope you pray. I hope you read the word. I hope you come to church. Paul told Timothy, this is the mystery of the gospel. And that is God manifest in the flesh, justified by the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. That's the good news. That's all. Still, it has nothing to do with the statue. It has nothing to do with us. That's the good news. Now, as a matter of fact, I, I would probably say I am not a follower of the gospel. I'm a follower of Jesus. Who holds the gospel? And who is the gospel? So you say, well, why this in, intense definition of, of this then, of this gospel. Well, I'm going to give you two reasons, just two points this morning, and I'll be done very quickly. Two points this morning. Number one, first, the reason of this, this is so important is everything happens through Jesus. Everything happens through Jesus. 
All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, John says. So he is the cause of creation, the word that was with God in the beginning. It's all Jesus. He is also the consummation of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So everything starts in Jesus and it ends in Jesus. And he is also the instrumental cause of our salvation. He is working in us to both will and to do his good pleasure. He's doing it in us. Here's the point of this. If you try to insert anything else as the instrument of God's salvation into your life, you will fail. If you try religion, you'll fail. If you try liturgy, you'll fail. If you try works, you'll fail. If you try to insert your holiness, you'll just become frustrated because you'll find out how unholy you are. If you try to correct your own sinfulness, you'll become depressed. If you try to insert your own spiritual journey, you'll get really lost really fast. If you try to insert your deeds, then you'll become spiritually compulsive. All you'll do every day is try to correct your deeds over and over and over and over and over. It won't work. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was Augustine. Before he was saved, he was a very profligate man. He visited prostitutes quite often. Then, he, then he, Christ found him and he accepted Christ as a savior. And, and he struggled afterwards with lust. He was a young man, unmarried. He struggled with lust. And it was so difficult for him that he, he got so angry with his flesh that every time he had a lustful thought, he had somebody lower him into a pit and he would roll in thorns. How many know that did nothing? Now you're just lustful and you got a bunch of blood pricks all over your body. <laughs> but you still have the same lust. Nothing changes. So everything has to happen through the word being led by the spirit. It was the prophet Isaiah who said, Woe unto him who strives with his maker. Can the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? <laughs> Allow him to be your maker. Allow him to be the instrument of your salvation. Be like Mary, who we're celebrating in this Christmas season, who said, Be it unto me, even as thy word. It's so simple. It's all about Jesus. You don't have to look anywhere else. You just open your word and begin to read, and it's all Jesus from beginning to end. So that's the first thing is everything that, that happens happens through him, and, and, it's, and it makes it very clear and concise and simple. And the second thing, and this is, now this is where it gets good then. This is the nice part. This is where the statue comes into play. This is where we are. Second thing is that everything that happened to Jesus happens now to me. Oh, that's good. I live with him because I died with him. I'll be resurrected with him because I died to death with him and was resurrected with him. I will receive a glorified body someday. I receive the power of the Holy Spirit in me now because of his resurrected life. Everything that he did that happened to him is now happening to me. And it, and it starts all through the Old Testament. You can go all the way back in the Old Testament. You can go to Psalm 16. David speaks prophetically of Jesus, and he says, You will not leave my soul in hell, nor will we allow your Holy One to see corruption. Right? He's speaking prophetically of Jesus. But it was in that same chapter that David says, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. Boy, didn't God have his hands full trying to maintain David? Boy, doesn't God have his hands full trying to maintain you? 
the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And the second time he says, I have a good inheritance. Listen, folks, because of Jesus, because of that instrumental force of who Jesus is, I have an inheritance this morning. Ephesians, the first chapter, in him we have an obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 14, and has given to us the guarantee of our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. And verse 18, we have riches of the glory of his inheritance. To the Colossians, we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, and we have the reward of the inheritance. To the Hebrews, and for this reason, Jesus, the instrumental cause, is the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And again, in 1 Peter, we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for us in heaven. Can you name one thing right now that is incorruptible and is not fading away? Nothing. Nothing. But I've got an inheritance in heaven this morning that's never going to go away. Got my name on it. No one can buy it out from under my... Elon Musk can't buy it. Hallelujah. (laughs) No one can buy it. Psalm 118. David speaks prophetically of Jesus again. And he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. And then there's that verse that that we always apply to us, which is true, but it's applied to Jesus. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it. The instrument has become obvious to the whole world. We're going to rejoice in it. But it's in that same chapter that David said, the nations have surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. For in the name of the Lord, again, I will destroy them. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteousness. Because of Jesus this morning, the instrument of God's power, I have strength I have a song in my heart, and I've got rejoicing. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Hallelujah. Though my outward man is perishing, Paul says, and boy is it ever, it's growing weaker every day. It's becoming more frail every day. The strength is waning every day. But inside, I'm getting stronger every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. Inside of me, there's a roaring lion that's seeking what it may devour. Inside of me, there's power on top of power, on top of dunamis, on top of explosive power, on top of authority, and it's growing every day as we near the kingdom. In that same chapter, It was David that said uh, that, that this power and this authority will cause me to destroy all the works of the enemy. Zechariah, the ninth chapter. Zechariah speaks prophetically of Jesus, this instrument. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Lowly, he's bringing salvation. Lowly, riding on a donkey, on the coal, the foal of a donkey. But it was in that same chapter. Oh, I love this verse. Zechariah 9. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Because even today that I will declare, I restore double to you. Hallelujah. Because of Jesus, I am free this morning. I have hope this morning. And I'm going to get back double everything I've lost. 
I was once a prisoner of death, now I'm a prisoner of hope. I was once a waterless pit, now out of my belly flows rivers of living water. Joel, the second chapter, going to just send you the rain. I'm going to send you, and the latter rain as well. My threshing floors are full of wheat. My vats overflow with wine and oil. Because my God, my sculptor says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. Is that for me? Yes. Because the Bible says, Peter, in book of Acts, and it shall come to pass, I will pour out my spirit. Oh, I'm glad I serve a God that pours out this morning. He doesn't dribble out. He pours out. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And on my maid servants and maid, maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. Even elderly Russian women will get up and pray and prophesy. Hallelujah. I've got rivers of living water inside of me. I've got fountains this morning. I've got geysers this morning. Not because of me, but because of the instrument of God's authority and power, whose name is Jesus. Matthew the fourth, uh, Malachi, the fourth chapter, again, speaks prophetically of Jesus. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. You shall go out and listen. Oh, I love this. You will grow fat like stall-fed calves. Hallelujah. Take a couple notches out of your belt. Because of Jesus, I can get fat. You say, wait a minute, what's that mean? That word means abound. Because of Jesus, I can abound and keep on abounding. Romans, the fifth chapter, by the grace by grace, one man, by the grace of one man, by the grace of one instrument, Jesus Christ, this instrument, grace has abounded to many. Jesus was one tiny speck that exploded throughout the universe, his grace. Romans 15, I can abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 9, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance to every good work. In Ephesians and Philippians, Paul says, I am abounding in wisdom and in all prudence. I am abounding in love. I am abounding in knowledge, all because of Jesus. For it was fitting for him are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of thou salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. The statue has become one with the sculptor. <laughs> Not even Michelangelo could do that. The statue has become one with the sculptor. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we will be comes through the instrument named Jesus. Everything. And that is the good news. There is no bad news in it. The good news is not what happened to me. The good news is not what I have. The good news is not what I will become. But who he is right now. Now you may say, okay, in conclusion, how do we actuate this in our lives? How, how, how does this happen? How, I, well, we know it's, it's salvation. We know it's claiming Christ as Savior. We know it's saying, Jesus, I repent of my sins and I accept you as Savior. We know that, of course. But, but in this Christmas season, 
And, and that's good to get saved. We, we want to we enter the kingdom that way. But how many know that after you get saved and you accept Christ as your personal Savior, that it's all over, right? You don't have to do anything anymore, right? You're, you're the complete statue now. There's nothing else left. That's right. God, you can go ahead and do it. Go to the next person over there. They're really lousy. <laughs> I'm good now. No, no, no. What, 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 did, what did God want from Mary? Did, did God want her intellect? No. Did he want her scholarly approach to Old Testament scripture? No. Did he, did he want her money? Well, she didn't have any. Listen. All God wanted from Mary was her womb. And a yes. That's all. He said, I, I just need a place on this earth to put the Messiah. I just need a place on this earth to plant the seed of the gospel, to place my instrument. And and all I want is just someone to say, yes. Folks, (laughs) all he wants is your spiritual womb. That's all he wants. He just wants your heart. He just wants our heart. He just wants a place to put his throne, to put his throne, to say, this is, this is where I want to plant it right now. You don't even have to do anything. There's nothing you can do. All you can do is just say yes. And you know what he would really prefer is that we would say yes every hour of the day. That every time we open this word, We would say, you know what, Father? Before I even read the word, here it is. Ready? Yes. (laughs) Be it unto me, even as your servant says. Be it unto me. Just say yes. That's all he wants. And when we say yes, when the clay says yes, when the clay stops asking questions, when the clay says stops complaining, when the clay stops looking around, when the clay just says yes, spiritual Michelangelo, start with the chiseling, start forming me the way you want me to be. When the clay says that, the sculptor says, I got it. I got it all. I got it all. bow our heads. Father, I just thank you so much that you are the sculptor because there are so many times in my life that I've tried to sculpt things. I thought I was doing the right thing, but it turned out I was really wrong. And the thing that I created was not a sculpture at all. It was just a mess. But Father, when you are the sculptor, when you take the instrument of Jesus and tune him to us and sculpt him in our lives. Every time you do it, you make something beautiful. So, Father, I would ask that for all of us this morning that we would just open our hearts to you just like Mary did 2,000 years ago. That little girl just said, yes, Lord. Gabriel, I don't understand. I've never been with a man. I don't understand how this can happen. And Gabriel says, didn't you just see your, your, your Elizabeth? 
Didn't you see your aunt? Didn't you see what happened to her? Didn't you see what happened to Sarah in the Old Testament? With God, nothing is impossible. And Father, for us, we can say it too. I don't know how you're going to get me from A to Z. I don't know how you're going to fix this in my life. I don't know how you're going to take this. But all I know is if I say yes to you, nothing will be impossible to the instrument of God's power. So help us to open our eyes to you, our ears to you. We receive it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. How many know that after you hear what the good news is, you really, really, really can say with great assurance, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Keep the toys, keep the baubles, keep the money. Merry Christmas, I've got Jesus. And Jesus has got me. How many are glad you have that present, (laughs) that gift? Hallelujah. Praise his name. Turn around. Bless somebody you're dismissed. Go forth praising him. Be faithful to your sculptor as he creates Jesus in you.